Here's the senior pastor of Gospel City Church, Trent Griffith. Sin makes us poor. Sin takes us captive. Sin makes us blind. And sin wounds the oppressed. Now, if I had greeted you this morning by saying something like this, welcome to Gospel City Church, you poor, captive, blind, oppressed people. That's not very flattering, is it? It's pretty uh, offensive. And yet it is only broken people that will seek a savior. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith. I'm Aaron Paulus. I hope your new year is going well. And I don't know about you, but for me, the new year is a time of fresh beginnings, a time for starting over. That's a picture of what Jesus does for us. He makes all things new. In fact, that's the title of a new series that Pastor Trent is starting right here on Resonate. He gave this message last year, just after our church had adopted a new name and just after he had returned from a trip. You'll hear him refer to it in a moment. So let's listen together. Here's Pastor Trent. Get your Bibles open to Luke chapter four as we continue to march verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. If you have just started attending Gospel City Church in the last four weeks, I'm a new face to you. So uh, my name's Trent. They let me be the pastor around here and it's a privilege to be back uh, doing what I think God created me to do. But you guys were in good hands over the last four weeks. Uh, I had the privilege uh, last week of taking a group of people from our church to Israel and walking where Jesus walked. Here's a picture I took while we were there at a very strategic location uh, behind me. You will see us in front of the garden tomb where it could have been that Jesus was resurrected. We looked. He's not there. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Whether you have been in church for 30 years or 30 minutes, you need a new encounter with Jesus. I need a new encounter with Jesus this morning. And so every time we open God's word, every time we open our hearts and our ears to hear from him and invite him into our presence, we get to have a new encounter with Jesus. One of the last verses of scripture I left you with uh, before I left was this verse in Luke chapter five. Jesus said this, no one puts new wine in old wine skins. And this was a warning to us never to become an old, crusty, stale Christian. That's like having an old wineskin. And Jesus said that it, new wine burst an old wineskin. Now, we don't want you just to burst right here because you uh, are, have become an old, crusty Christian. We need new encounters with Jesus. Jesus is the new wine. And as we open our hearts, he pours that new wine into us, creates new power, new life, new love, new passion, new worship, all of those things. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So I want to leave today filled up with new wine. How about you? 
So that's what we're going after as we begin this series. Over the next um, four or five chapters here, that's what we're going to be encountering is Jesus as new wine. Now, in the first three chapters, just by way of review, if you've been following along here, we, in that series we called Behold, uh, Luke, who was a Gentile, the only Gentile writer of Scripture that we have, is writing to Gentiles, his, his rich friend Theophilus, and um, Luke is introducing him to who Jesus is. He's trying to answer the question, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, and he parades in front of us all these witnesses with an opinion about who Jesus is. So the angels had an opinion about who Jesus was, the shepherds had an opinion, Mary, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and then finally we saw that God the Father had an opinion about who Jesus was, and at Jesus' baptism, God the Father said, this is my beloved son. And so there is a definitive declaration that Jesus is God's son. So we get to chapter four. Now we get to hear from Jesus himself. So the question is, who does Jesus think Jesus is? So we're going to pick up the story here in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, and it says this, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now remember, he had just been in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, which was in the southern part of Jerusalem, very desert land, rocky, hilly, no life. That's the wilderness. And now we see Jesus coming out of the wilderness in power into a very fertile place in northern Israel, which is known as Galilee. Do you like to use the maps in the back of your Bible? You ever wonder, when do we get to use the maps? Now, we can, we can use the maps here. So here's a map. And um, as you see, uh, off to the left there, off to the west, that's the western coast of northern Israel. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, over to the right here is the Sea of Galilee. And you see some towns dotted around the Sea of Galilee. Now, the reason I'm showing you that is over the next five chapters, we're going to be reading stories about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, all around that lake. It's really not that big of a lake. They call it the sea. It's just, it's just kind of a moderate-sized lake. And uh, Jesus did a year and a half of ministry there. And there was about 240 different villages and towns around there. Almost all of them had a synagogue. Notice here in verse 14, Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went about him throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So what's a synagogue? Not the temple. There's only one temple. That was in Jerusalem, and that was the place you had to go to worship. That's where all the festivals and the feast and the sacrifices, they could only be offered in Jerusalem, about three days walk to the south of this area in Galilee, only one temple. But every Jewish community had a synagogue. The synagogue was usually made of stone. It faced toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, and it really wasn't a place of worship. It was more of a gathering place. It was a place of teaching and learning the Hebrew scriptures. And so the people would come every Sabbath to learn the Old Testament stories of how God was at work through the Jewish people. And so Jesus is teaching in these synagogues. Verse 16, and he came 
to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. On the count of three, tell me your hometown. Where were you brought up? Three, two, one. All right, so I'm sure that that was better than Muskogee, Oklahoma, okay? That's where I was, that was where I was born and raised. And that's a pretty obscure place, but that's a parallel to the city of Nazareth. Nazareth was not a metropolitan area. It was a really insignificant place, just kind of a hick town. That's where Jesus was from, which gives those of us who are from Muskogee hope that Jesus can identify with people that were from obscure places. And so you remember Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's in the southern Judean area down by Jerusalem. But his hometown where he was brought up was Nazareth. So Mary and Joseph, this is where the carpentry business would have been for Joseph. And so he was well known. They'd watched him grow up. Jesus is about 30 years old. For 30 years, they had watched him grow up there in Nazareth, about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, just put yourself in a time machine, transport yourself back to first century Galilee in this little city of Nazareth, and you've come to the gathering place, the synagogue, and you would have seen a very familiar face there. You would have seen Jesus. Now just, just think, th- think about this. Jesus had spent almost every Sabbath of his 30-year life in this synagogue. He would have been as familiar as, as some of your children are around here because you drag them to church every time you come to church on Sunday and they're just, we see them and we know them, they're recognized, they're just like part of the furniture around here. You come to church, you see your kid, you see you because this is your gathering place as it should be every Sunday. Turn to your neighbor and say, as it should be every Sunday on time even. Okay, that's just a little side note, but that's what, Jesus was a very familiar face in this synagogue. So now as an adult, He's actually one of the ones that has the privilege of reading the scripture. Now again, time machine. This was first century. People didn't bring their Bibles to the synagogue. You know why? There were no printed Bibles. There was no, and if you were to bring your Bible, it would have been a big library of scrolls, you know, of the Old Testament scriptures. And so we're living in a day where we have such access to God's word and we take it so for granted. No Bible apps back in the day. Um, It just blows your mind to think about the access to God's word. If you wanted access to the scripture in first century Galilee, there was only one place you could have access to it in the synagogue where somebody would unroll a scroll and read it to you. They couldn't even say, open your scroll because you wouldn't have had a scroll. You would just have to be a very attentive listener and memorizer of God's word as it was audibly transmitted to you. So here's Jesus. He's in the temple. Today's his day. He gets to read the scripture in the synagogue. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place 
where it is written. Now, let me put the pause button right there. And I want to ask you right now to unroll your scroll of Isaiah. Hold your finger right there or put that little ribbon right there and turn back to Isaiah. If you, this is Bible drill time. Bible drill. See if you can find Isaiah. It's about halfway through the Old Testament there. Turn to the right a little bit. Isaiah, it's one of the longest books in the Old Testament, and find chapter 61, okay? Don't lose your place in Luke 4. We're coming back there. Some of you that are using a Bible app right now are totally confused. Where's the ribbon? I can't find it. What? You know, so bring a printed Bible. It will help you navigate the Scripture, okay? So how many of you have found Isaiah 61? Have you found it? All right, this is what Jesus read to them. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now hold your place there, flip back to Luke 4, and we pick it up in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And there's a dramatic pause. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Is he going to say something? Here's what he says. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is, has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What was the scripture? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For years... 700 years, God's people understood that Isaiah 61 was a prophecy that would predict some day, someone would come to set the captives free, to open the eyes of the blind, to heal the wounds of the oppressed. And did you hear what Jesus said? You don't have to wait for someday anymore. It's no longer someday. Jesus said, it's today. And in doing so, Jesus said that prophecy was about me. And here I am. 
and it boggled their brain. They did not know what to do with what he was saying. Jesus, I mean, didn't we change his diapers? Uh, didn't we keep him in the nursery? Didn't, wasn't he the angel at the Christmas cantata one year? You know, they, they, he was so familiar. Like we, we thought it was going to be like a, a king riding into town, you know, releasing us from the power of Roman oppression. And it's Jesus from Nazareth? Now, I want you to notice, back over in Isaiah 61, a very important place. Now, do you, again, before you go there, do you notice what happened? See, he, he read, he rolled it up, he gave it back, and he sat down. He stopped reading. He didn't continue to read all of Isaiah 61. He stopped, flip back over to Isaiah 61. Do you see verse 2? to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look at the next phrase. And the day of vengeance of our God. Do you see the white space between those two phrases? Between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Do you see the white space in there? That's where we live. When Jesus came the first time, what did he do? He declared that today is a day of the Lord's favor. When Jesus comes the second time, he's going to declare today is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Do you see what he did? He announced there is a new day. All things are new. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. Here's the first thing I came to tell you. Jesus declares a new day for broken people. And we are living in that day. And it is a limited time frame. If you have not yet embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the one who came to set you free from sin, what are you waiting for? Your time is limited. Jesus could come back at any moment. And when he comes back, the year of the Lord's favor is over. Your opportunity to get right with God is over. Because when he comes again, the only thing that people outside of Christ will experience is the vengeance of the Lord as he settles all moral accounts, as he brings justice to every injustice, as he brings retribution and vengeance upon every sin that is not atoned for outside of Christ. We live in the space in between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. And you understand, when we talk about a day, we're not talking about like a 24-hour day. We're talking about an era, and we're not talking about a year, 365 years. We're talking about a, a time period where Jesus opened it up to us 2,019 years ago, and we are waiting for his second coming, well, he will make all things new. It's a new day for broken people. But I want you to notice who Jesus came for. Very specific people that he describes back over in Luke chapter four. If you're not back in Luke chapter four, now we're gonna stay there the rest of the time there. And I want you to notice how he describes these broken people. What did Jesus come to accomplish and who did he come to redeem? The answer to that question is found in verse 18. He describes these people in four different ways. He calls them poor, captives, blind, 
and oppressed. What does that mean? Understand this. Sin makes us poor. Sin takes us captive. Sin makes us blind. And sin wounds the oppressed. Now, if I had greeted you this morning by saying something like this. Welcome to Gospel City Church, you poor, captive, blind, oppressed people. Would you like, I think I might find a different church because that's not very flattering, is it? As a matter of fact, if you are listening closely, that is offensive to strip away all of your self-esteem, to strip away all of your self-righteousness and to call you a poor, captive, blind, oppressed person is pretty offensive. And yet it is only broken people that will seek a savior. Until you understand your spiritual poverty, your spiritual imprisonment, your spiritual blindness, and your spiritual oppression, you will treat Jesus as an insignificant historical figure who is only useful for grandmothers and Girl Scouts. Do you have need of a Savior? Or are you doing okay on your own? Every opportunity we have to encounter Jesus is an opportunity to express how much we need him to do something new in our lives. And so let's understand what this means. Understand, we're poor. Now listen, he's not talking about economically poor. He's talking about spiritually poor. As a matter of fact, some of the most economically poor people are some of the most spiritually rich people because they understand how much they need Christ because they have such limited resources to live on. And yet some of the most economically rich people are some of the most spiritually poor because why do you need Jesus when you've got money? And so understand this spiritual poverty comes as a result of the consequences of sin. What does sin do? Sin beats you up and robs you of everything that's valuable in life. Sin steals from you your joy. It steals intimacy from God. It steals your integrity. And sin leaves you with no ability to pay your sin debt and leaves you in a debtor's prison awaiting the judgment of God. We're spiritually poor. Not only that, we're spiritually captive. Now the world would tell you that it's, it's those religious people, it's, it's those Jesus people that are really in a prison. I mean, they don't have any freedom to do the things that they want to do and they have to follow all these rules. But the reality is it is sinners who are captive to sin. It's sinners that have lost their freedom. Sin traps you into patterns of thinking and behaving which you can't bend your way back out of. Sin puts you in bondage. It makes you its slave. It wears down your resistance to say no to other sin. And then it puts you in a prison cell on death row awaiting the just judgment of a holy God makes you its captive. And sin causes spiritual blindness. Now, spiritual blindness is the default condition of the human heart. You are born into this world without the ability to see how selfish and rotten you really are. 
You don't have the ability to see how holy and righteous God is and how compassionate and loving and merciful he is. We're blind to those things. We're blind to the effects of sin. We're blind to the effects of our sin on other people. We're blind to the damage that our sin causes. If, if God would open our eyes to see the damage sin causes, we would never sin again. And yet we're spiritually blind. We walk around bumping into things, causing damage to ourselves and to others. And we need something and someone outside of us to open our eyes to spiritual realities, to see the glory of Christ. And then finally, he says that he's come for the oppressed. Anybody here experience any stress this week at all? Raise your hand if you experienced any stress whatsoever. Stressed about a relationship, stressed about finances, stressed about your inability to make something right or build something or achieve an ambition. All of this. Do you know what all of that is? It's the oppression, it's the heaviness, it's the weightiness that we feel living in a sin-broken, fallen world. God never designed you to experience any stress or any oppression. Do you know what you're feeling? In some way, every ounce of stress is related to a sinful choice. Either a sinful choice that you made that brought stress into your life or a sinful choice that somebody else made that's making your life feel stressed and oppressed. Any oppressed people here? living with the consequences of what somebody else did to you, an abusive power, an injustice, somebody slandered you, stole from you, mistreated you, broke a promise to you. This is the world we live in. We're all oppressed. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Don't you feel better about yourself? Jesus calls you poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. And you should be offended at this point. It's like, I ain't that. I got some resources and I got some power and I can see a few things and I'm enlightened and, and I'm, I'm, I've, I've been beat up but I'm overcoming. That's what the world tells you to do with all that. Or you could admit you need a savior and take all that to him and believe that Jesus was the one who came to set the captives free Notice what he said he would do. Jesus pays our debt. Yes, we're spiritually impoverished. We have nothing to offer God as payment for our sin. But notice what the apostle Paul said. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become spiritually rich. The only way to be rich before God is to exchange your poverty for his riches because he exchanged his riches for your poverty. That's the gospel. It's what Jesus came to do. That's an encouraging word from Pastor Trent Griffith, and he'll continue that message next week. Well, maybe you're realizing that there are some spiritually old things in your life that you need Jesus to make new. Can I offer you this advice? just ask him to. Tell him, Jesus, I'm tired of being spiritually poor, imprisoned, blind, and oppressed, and I need you to make me new again. It's a prayer that he will gladly answer. 
Well, if you're looking for a church to call home, why not visit Gospel City Church? We proclaim the authority of God's Word without apology. We lift high the name of Jesus through worship. We believe firmly in the power of prayer, and we share the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information about service times and locations, just go to our website, mygospelcity.org. Again, that's mygospelcity.org. And you can also follow us on Facebook when you search for Gospel City Church. Well, have you ever wanted to throw someone off a cliff? Maybe not literally, but next week, we'll hear about a time when people wanted to literally do that to Jesus. Pastor Trent will finish his message next week on Resonate. Well, thanks for listening today. I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer is that Jesus would make you new and that God's word would resonate in your heart this week. Resonate with Trent Griffith is a ministry of Gospel City Church. Visit us online at mygospelcity.org.